listening to The Venue Podcast. The Venue is a worship gathering at Southcrest Baptist Church. We hope that this podcast helps you find your greatest pleasure and purpose in Jesus. I know what some of y'all are thinking. You looked at that date, September 26, 2009, and you looked at the video and you were kind of like, mm, I don't know, maybe it was September 26, 1998. Video quality wasn't that great. Unfortunately, we had to film our wedding from a toaster. One of our media guys said that joke this week, and I laughed hysterically, and I thought it it was going to be great, but didn't land well. Uh, I wanted to begin our time this morning just by showing you a glimpse of the covenant that Sarah and I made almost 13 years ago. Uh, And those of you who are not married or are uh, planning to get married soon, that, that what I did as a freebie, uh, freshen up the breath for the kiss. Just wise, wise words. It's a joy to be with you this morning. Um, I, I want us to look at Proverbs and think about marriage for a few moments. Specifically, though, if you turn to Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31. Uh, I was reminded, though, by some staff and then even one of our high school students this morning that if I'm talking about marriage, then I have to say, marriage. (laughs) We're going to talk about marriage this morning. We will look at Proverbs in just a few moments. um, And what you're looking at, hopefully, in your notes, if you want to follow along with me, um, I've got a couple of definitions and then... Uh, those three things are not my points. Those are essentially my, that's my outline for our time this morning. So uh, I hope that you'll follow along uh, with me as we work through this together. I am very hopeful that men and women, single and married, young and old, who are here in this room would hear this this morning and be encouraged from this truth that we find in the scriptures. So before we get to Proverbs 31, I'd like to go back actually and look at the very beginning of time itself where God instituted the very first marriage between Adam and Eve. Now, before I talk about that, if you would join me as we pray to the Lord. Father in heaven, we've come to this section of our time together. So God, would you help uh, them hear and receive as I give, as I attempt to speak on this beautiful picture, this covenant, this thing that you have designed and given to us in grace. Help us, Lord, to be receptive and to be changed by the power of your spirit, not just by words. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. And everyone said, amen. In Genesis chapter two, God takes Adam, who was formed first, he puts him into a deep sleep, pulled a rib, out of his body, took it, and formed him a helper. And then when that was done, he woke Adam up. And when Adam awoke and saw her, he felt complete. Because finally, he saw something that looked like him. And with joy in his eyes, he says this. We see this in Genesis chapter 2. This one, at last, this one is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for she was taken from man. Now, you can imagine this is a big deal because God had created everything and he gave naming rights to Adam. And as he was going through and naming everything, he would say, okay, land creature, land creature, bird, sea creature, sea creature, land creature, land creature, bird, bird. 
nothing like him. And then in this moment, he said, whoa, there is one that is like me. And then Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes this passage that we are so familiar with that even Jesus quoted himself from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, that says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Dear friends, Christians in today's world need a proper, healthy, biblical understanding of marriage because of the world that we live in. And this world that we live in continues to minimize and destroy this covenant of marriage and make it something that fits them. We've taken this God-birthed, glory-displaying institution that God has specifically built for one man and for one woman, not one man and six women, and not one man and one man, and certainly not one woman and one woman. The problem with the world that we live in today is that we have a very low view or a very low regard for marriage. And when I say that, primarily what I mean or who I'm speaking of is unbelievers. My hope and desire is that Christians in this room understand this concept and have a high regard for marriage. But is it important for us to be reminded because Christians are not immune to this idea of falling into a pitfall of a lie or falling into being deceived and having a lower view of marriage. So again, my hope for us this morning is if you're married or not, young or old, lean in with me, indulge me for just a few moments this morning, because marriage is not just about getting to live with someone that you love and have sex with them whenever you want. Don't start believing half-truths about marriage. I believe it was Nick Watts that said that last week. A half-truth is still a lie. Don't be naive and go into marriage fostering something that will only lead to your hurt, your confusion, or even your anger. Because when you do that, you, I, have been guilty of this. We miss out on something entirely more beautiful. We miss out on God's design for marriage. Now, the Bible has a very high view of marriage. Would you agree? Amen? And rightly so, right? It is God himself who thought of, designed, created, and then gave us marriage ultimately for the sole purpose of displaying his glory. And since God desires to display his glory through you and through me, it's wise for us to understand why he wants to do that and how he does that. So as I prepared this week, I couldn't help but think of my own marriage Coming up next month, it will be 13 years. And I thought this, the longer that I am married, the more I learn to love and appreciate the institution of marriage itself, particularly because of what God has designed in it and what God has ordained to come to pass in my marriage and in yours. So not only do I love Sarah, but I love being married to her not just because of the benefits that she and I receive in this institution of marriage, but primarily because of what God is doing through it, meaning my sanctification and her sanctification. And I'll explain a little bit more about that towards the end of our time together. And before we really dive in and look at Proverbs 31, let me take a moment to explain what I mean and what I hope to communicate when I say marriage 
and when I say covenant. So if you'll refer to your notes, uh, follow along with me and you'll see this on the screen. Let me give you kind of my definition of, of what marriage is. And what I've done is I've taken my knowledge and training and reading and read different articles and scriptures uh, in the Bible, and I've kind of formed this definition. So here's what I would say a marriage is. Marriage is a sacred union between one man and one woman who enter into a covenant with God and each other to become one flesh. Marriage is a sacred union between one man and one woman who enter into a covenant with God and each other to become one flesh. Now, depending on who you ask, uh, if they're a believer or not, and you were to ask them, hey, what is marriage? You'd probably get a list of different, different definitions. A more common secular uh, definition, if I were to think of one here just in the moment, would be uh, that legal thing we do so we can live together and get a tax benefit. But that's not what God has designed. That's not what God has given us. So marriage is this side of heaven. It's a sacred union between one man and one woman who enter into a covenant with God to become one flesh. Now, what do I mean when I say covenant? Because we're going to talk about that here for a few moments. What is a covenant? Most of you know that is a contractual agreement. Uh, but what, how does covenant play into the Bible and play into marriage? And that's what I want to explore for just a few moments. So here's how I would define or explain covenant. And you'll see this on the screen behind me. A covenant, in, in my own kind of mixture uh, understanding, here's what I would say a covenant is. An agreement between two parties that make promises to each other to achieve a common goal. An agreement between two parties that make promises to each other to achieve a common goal. Now, uh, depending on who you are, early Christian, you've been a Christian for years, or non-Christian, you would probably take this idea of covenant into the context of a marriage and say, well, yeah, I can see that. That makes sense. I'm getting married, and we're agreeing to do this together, and we have a common goal in mind, whether it's to raise a family or to stay out of debt or to try and love each other, whatever it may be. But also in the context of Scripture, God loves covenants because he operates in that framework. And I want to talk about that for just a few moments. So covenant, again, an agreement between two parties that make promises to each other to achieve a common goal. Now, follow with me as we think about covenants for a few moments in Scripture. Now, since marriage is a covenantal agreement between two people who become one flesh— and then they enter into this agreement with God, I wanted to take a few moments to explore covenants in Scripture with you. And I felt it was important to do that because of the importance that God has placed on covenants in redemptive history. So I'm talking about the beginning of Genesis 1-1, the beginning of time all the way until today. I want to think about that importance. So depending again on who you ask or who you might be reading, most scholars and theologians would agree that there are five main covenants in the Bible. In the Old Testament, we see God in his sovereignty working through covenants with Noah, which is known as the Noahic covenant, then a covenant with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, then a covenant with Moses, known as the Mosaic covenant, and then David, the Davidic covenant, it's the fourth one, and then the fifth one, most commonly known to us, is the new covenant, which is where Jesus comes onto the picture, onto the scene. Now, those are the five main ones that you would see in Scripture and probably read about in most of your theology books. 
But others might say that there are seven covenants in Scripture. In fact, if you and I were to set a time and go sit over a cup of coffee and discuss these things and discuss theology, I would argue for seven covenants that we see in Scripture. So here are the other two that I might add. If, if you're curious or you just, well, you're listening to me anyway, so here they are. The other two covenants that I see mentioned, not directly, not blatantly, not obviously, but they are there. The, the, the framework and the structure of those covenants are there. The first one is known as the Edenic covenant, which is the covenant that God gave and put into place with Adam in the Garden of Eden. And we see that covenant laid out in Genesis 1 through 3. Genesis chapter 1 through 3. This is the covenant that God made with Adam and rightly so with Eve. And that's the other covenant that we see. Now, do we see the word covenant in Genesis 1 through 3? No. Do we see the framework of God giving commands and uh, guidelines and then promising to be obedient to bless if those guidelines and commands are obeyed. Yes, we do see that. So that's the other one. The seventh one that I would say we see is the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption. Now, I mentioned and I attempted to explain the covenant of redemption in a sermon about a year ago from this stage when we uh, spent some time thinking about the doctrine of hell. Uh, So I'd encourage you, if you're curious to hear more about that, you can refer back to that sermon on the Southcrest podcast. Now, while the exact number of covenants that are seen in the Bible could be argued or they're up for debate, the truth is this. There are really only two primary covenants that God has been operating under. And we see them every time we open the Bible. Y'all with me? Think about it this way. How many books or testaments is your Bible broken into? Two. The Old Testament and the New Testament. The word for uh, testament, there's actually two words used in the New Testament that are actually rightly translated as covenant. And if you've been in church since you were a kid and you've been through Sunday school classes and you've had Miss Mabel who's taught you since you were a little baby, you've probably heard that it's been referred in this way, that we actually operate, we see the Bible operating under the old covenant and the new covenant. And in the old covenant, we see God orchestrating and entering into several covenants, which I mentioned just a few moments ago, throughout history. And I said several covenants for a reason, because this, humans have always done what we do so well. And what is that? fail to uphold our end of the bargain. But God, in his holiness and in his grace, never fails to uphold his end of the bargain. He enters into these covenants with these humans, agreeing to these terms, and he never goes back on his promise. But we did. And God, in his infinite grace and wisdom, said, okay, I'll give them another chance. And there's another covenant. And so once we reach the end of the Old Testament, we get to the part in history where Jesus comes onto the scene and he ushers in a new covenant, which is known as the New Testament. Um, Some theologians have even referred to this covenant as the covenant of grace. Does that make sense? Like this is where Jesus comes onto the scene. He absorbs our sin, dies in our place, and then he offers us salvation by grace. Amen? So that is known as the covenant of grace. Now, Why all this talk for a few moments about covenants when we're in a sermon about marriage? 
Well, there is a list of reasons, but let me share two with you that I thought of as I was preparing this week. First, I would contend that it's incredibly helpful to understand covenants because God has designed and called marriage a covenant. Amen? So when you got married, brothers, sisters, or when you get married, you will or have entered into a legally binding agreement that says you're going to stay with that person for the rest of your life. But you also entered into an eternal, spiritual covenant with God. And as Christians, if we are entering into a covenant with God and our spouse, and in this covenant, God calls us to image forth the love of Christ and to show believers or unbelievers what God is really like and to show the world what true humility and grace look like. The difference, we must be utterly dependent upon the one who has never broken his promise. Amen? The second reason I would argue or contend that understanding covenants, when we talk about marriage is important, is because of the role that covenants play in the Bible. And let, let me explain it this way. You see, covenants are not the main theme, or they're not necessarily the main focal point of the Bible. That's Jesus. Amen? Amen. But covenants can be seen as the backbone of the Bible. These covenants essentially are the framework of how we read and understand the scriptures, or maybe you could see them as the skeleton of the Bible, in which we see redemptive history playing itself out. History has always either been looking forward to Jesus, or now as you and I are today, we are looking back to Jesus. So, marriage, covenants, proverbs, how does it all fit together? Well, I would submit this to you. From the onset, from the very beginning of time, marriage was designed to picture the covenant of grace between Christ and his church. Amen? I believe most of us know that. But here's the question, and this is where I'll transition to the second part. How do we do that? How do we as broken, fallen creatures image forth, show this glorious picture of grace and this picture of love that Christ has displayed? Well, I think one of the places we can go to is Proverbs 31. So if you'll look there with me, I want to read a few verses. Look at verse 10. I want to begin at verse 10. We're going to read a few and then we're going to skip. And I want to talk for just a few moments about being a Proverbs 31 man and being a Proverbs 31 woman. Now, I hope that has caught your attention because I feel like most of us in this day and age refer to and think of Proverbs 31 only being for women, right? Oh, let me submit to you another idea. Look at verse 10. An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. Verse 15, she rises while it is yet night, and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. Now, for time's sake, skip down to verse 22. Look at verse 22. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. 
She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household. It does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands, and let her works praise her in the gates. Amen. And while this section of Proverbs is incredibly insightful as to what a godly woman looks like or should look like, I think Christians myself included, have done themselves a disservice by limiting this wisdom to just women. And I've been guilty of that. For the last couple of decades, this chapter in Proverbs has grown in popularity by painting a picture of who or what a Christian woman should be like. And yes, I would agree with it. It is true. It is important. But while It is wisdom literature. We need to remember that as we're reading Proverbs, this is wisdom literature describing a woman. I think we've somewhat or to some extent neglected the context. Now, if you notice, look at verse 1 of chapter 31. This is the words of a man, King Lemuel. But it's not just his words. It's the wisdom that was imparted to him by his mother. So when we understand that, when we see that this proverb is given to a man by a woman, you'd see that this particular section of wisdom is written by a man, given it to him by his mother. So I think then it's fair for us to conclude that this wisdom, these proverbs that are given to him and to us are for him to not only look for these things in a woman, but also he should be helping shape her to be like this. Does that make sense? Yeah? Here's why I believe that to be true. For years, I've heard it this way, and guys, you may have heard this too. Guys, if you're not married, you need to find you a Proverbs 31 girl, right? Guys, if you're not married yet, you need to be praying for your Proverbs 31 woman. Amen? But, big but, as if she was going to be everything mentioned here by the time that you meet her and you marry her. That's few and far between. But if you flip the understanding and see it this way, guys, track with me. You see it as this is the woman that I want my wife to be. This is the woman that I desire to marry. And this is the woman that I want to help create in my household and foster and shape her through the providence and the grace of God. This is the woman that I want. This is the kind of person that I could spend the rest of my life with. And as you do that, as you are striving towards that goal, you realize that you can only do that in someone else if you yourself are doing those same things. We know this is true when we think about it in Christ in relation to his bride, the church. Jesus died for his bride, not because she was lovely. He died to make her lovely. One commentator once said this, 
Love begets loveliness and praise begets praiseworthiness. So here's what that means. To be lovely, you must first be loved. To be praiseworthy, you must first be praised. So husbands in the room, love her, support her, praise her. Think about these words we just read in Proverbs 31. Cherish her, trust in her, value her gifts and her strengths. Pray for her. Strive to be the husband that recognizes the godly calling of leading a family. Because the beauty of Proverbs 31 is that it pictures a marriage between a husband and a wife who together are striving towards a deep sense of spiritual maturity. And I've resorted, it's just putting this way for our time this morning. Behind every Proverbs 31 woman is a Proverbs 31 man. Amen? And behind every Proverbs 31 man is a Proverbs 31 woman. They walk together in unity and they're striving towards each other's personal holiness. Now, listen, I struggle with this last night. There's so much more that could be said about Proverbs 31 and I wish that we had time, but that's a whole other sermon for another time. But what I'd like to do for the remainder of our time is leave you with a few pieces of wisdom to help you work towards being a Proverbs 31 couple. Uh, If you were here a few weeks ago when uh, we looked at parenting from Proverbs, I left you with 10 things. And I thought, hey, what the hey, we'll do it again. So 10 things, if you want to jot down in your notes, let me share these with you. I would put these under the section of wisdom for a healthy marriage. Now, before I give you these, I'm assuming this. I'm assuming that a lot of what I'm about to say, most of you have heard before. Okay? This is not rocket science. This is biblical truth. But I'd like to submit them to you with the hope, dear friends, that you, whether you're married or not, will never lose sight of them or forget them. Amen? These things are vitally important in the process of sustaining you through your marriage, even during the darkest and most difficult times. Okay? That's my hope. So here's the first one. Number one, marriage, Christians, know and believe is not the world's idea. It's God's. Marriage is God's idea, not the world's. Marriage is one of the greatest institutions God has created and given to his creation to picture a greater reality. And when we choose to do it God's way and not our way, we are showing the world what God is like. So dear friends, no matter where you're at in your marriage, choose to do your marriage God's way not according to what the world is trying to tell you. Number two, know and believe in the deep recesses of your heart that marriage is a gift of grace. Marriage is a gift of grace. Therefore, do not abuse it. Do not abuse the gift of marriage. Not only is it a gift of grace to enter into a marriage covenant, but your spouse, himself or herself, is a gift from God that he intends to use as a part of your sanctification. When I realized that and held that in my own heart and mind, I started viewing Sarah differently, started giving more grace, more mercy, and more love, and was open to hearing her call me out on things that I didn't think I was wrong in, but she knew I was, because I knew that God was using her to make me more like Jesus. So when you're tempted to take him or her for granted, or you find yourself building up resentment towards your spouse because of something so minute, don't do it. 
Humble yourself and treasure the gift that he or she is. Amen? The other reason that I want to share this wisdom with you is because it is true that when a couple gets married, the two become what? One flesh. That's what the Bible says, right? Then it is fair for us to see it or conclude this. When you abuse or neglect or despise or belittle your spouse, you are doing the same to yourself. So marriage is a gift of grace. Don't abuse it. Third thing. Your marriage is not about you. It never was. It's about displaying the glory of God. Your marriage is not about you. Don't believe that lie from the world. It's about displaying the glory of God. That's really the simplest way I can put it. Let me give you a couple of quick examples. I just thought through these practically last night. Husbands, when you're at wit's end because you're stressed at work and you're sexually frustrated with your wife, remember that you are part of something bigger than yourself. You are part of something spiritual. Humble yourself before the Lord and before your wife and examine your own heart. Wives, when you're about to blow up because your husband isn't being very helpful and you're up to your neck in stress over cooking dinner and school projects and soccer practices and maybe even your own job, humble yourself. Pray for strength to show Christ-like love to your children and to your husband. And when you and I do this, when we do this, we do this because we recognize that marriage was never about us. For Christians who enter into a marriage, we know that when we stood on that stage before all these witnesses and before God and we said, I do, we entered into a lifelong commitment of dying to self. Tony, that's pretty harsh and drastic, is it? It's what Jesus did. Amen? And Jesus entered into that covenant of redemption with God the Father. He knew he was coming and was going to be ridiculed and made fun of and belittled, and then murdered. Did he deserve it? No. But he did it to display the glory of his Father. So if that's our heart's desire, then we must deny ourselves, pick up our crosses, just as Jesus did. Fourth one. This one isn't necessarily new. I don't feel like it's come from one person. It's probably been said for years, but I I pulled this one from one of my favorite pastors who preached a sermon in 2007. And this, is, this was the title of his sermon. So I'm going to give it to you. Here it is. Number four. Staying married is not about staying in love. Young people, I, I think that might be for you. Get that lie out of your head. Staying married is not about staying in love. Again, it's about keeping a covenant. Staying married is not about staying in love. If your marriage was based upon your feelings, then guess what? You probably wouldn't be married anymore. <laughs> I even thought about it this way this morning. Young couples, I'm thinking back to mine. You get married, you go on the honeymoon. If marriage was based upon how you felt, you'd probably come back not married <laughs> because it's been great and crazy up leading into that wedding and then you go on the honeymoon, you're trying to celebrate. And then what happens? We're just humans. Tension and fights and arguments ensue. So if marriage was based upon feelings and staying in love, it probably wouldn't last. It's about keeping a covenant. So Christians don't lose sight of that. Number five, your spouse is a part of the completing process. 
Your spouse is a part of the completing process. Now, let me explain that for just a second. For years, many of you, I've heard this, but I haven't liked it. Many of you you have heard, matter of fact, I thought about the 1996 movie, Jerry Maguire. Many of you old people know exactly what I'm talking about right now. Amen? That last scene at the end, Tom Cruise and Renee Zellweger, they're in that living room and he's looking at her with tears in in his eyes and he looks at her and says, you complete me. And then she turns and says, you had me at hello. (laughs) Now that phrase, you complete me, I haven't liked it. From a Christian worldview, I haven't liked it. Here's why, and I think most of you will agree. If you're looking to your spouse to become full, you're doing it the wrong way. Jesus can only do that. Amen? Don't fall into that lie either. Don't try and conform your spouse to be something that he or she isn't to make you feel better about yourself. Jesus makes you complete. Now, here's what I came across this week. A couple of articles that changed my perspective. Your spouse is a part of the completing process because your spouse is given to you and God's design of sanctifying you, of making you more like Jesus. But here's the other way I've seen it. Back in Genesis 2, what did God do when Adam was alone? Remember, he was naming all those things and he couldn't find anything that looked like him. You imagine he probably felt a sense of incompleteness. And then God put him to sleep, took his rib, and made him a woman. And when he looked at her, can you imagine what he felt? At last, this one is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And he felt complete. So the other way to see that is this. God has designed from the beginning of time man and woman to be together in union. And God uses sinfulness and brokenness of your spouse to help complete you, to make you more like Jesus. Make sense? Number six, recognize and embrace the God-ordained roles in marriage. Recognize and embrace the God-ordained roles in marriage. I won't comment too much here, but if you would write down 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, Peter lays out the grand picture, again, referring to Genesis 2, of how God has ordained and designed marriage to be. Recognize your roles. Wives, as the helper, as Peter puts it, the weaker vessel, and husbands who are supposed to sacrifice themselves and show the love of Christ to them. Now, I'm not belittling women at all, You are equal in God's sight. We are equal as his creation. But there is a specific God-ordained role in marriage. 1 Peter chapter 3 will help you. Number seven. This is one I have to tell myself a lot. Remember, you are just as much a sinner as your spouse is. Remember that you are just as much of a sinner as your spouse is. There is a book that our pastor back in Tennessee gave us as part of our premarital counseling that was titled, When Sinners Say I Do. So, dear brother and sister, don't forget, you are a sinful, broken creature entering into this covenant. And when you think you've got it figured out or you're better than her, take a step back, because <laughs> you're not. Anything good in you is from Jesus. But just remember that wisdom. You are just as much a sinner as your spouse is. So when you need help and grace, hopefully your spouse will show it to you. And when she or he needs it, you show it to them. 
Number eight. Number eight. Address the rain before the flood comes. Address the rain before the flood comes. And then jot down Proverbs 27, 15. It says, a continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. Now, I believe that this Proverbs is alluding to the problems of a nagging or a quarrelsome wife, and he's likening that to the constant dripping rain. And I think the encouragement here for us is to address the little things before they become really big things. So husbands, don't be afraid to initiate conversations. Check in with your wife regularly. Deal with the smaller things become, before they become really disastrous. I've had that happen in my life. And every time it happens, I said, man, if we just would have talked about it three weeks ago, it would have been so much better. Address the rain before the flood comes. Number nine, dear friends, be a crown for your spouse. Proverbs 12, four, be a crown for your spouse. Proverbs 12, four says, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. So husbands, be a crown for your wife. Wives, be a crown for your spouse. Number 10, this is where we begin to wrap up. Marriage is a vocation. Marriage, in other words, is work. Just as God commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and then to work and to tend to the garden to be able to reap its benefits. And dear friends, just as Jesus today is working, interceding, and praying on your behalf, we are to work for the sake of displaying God's glory. So brothers in the room, can I encourage you as I've been learning and trying to do myself, when you clock out and you go home and you pull in the garage and you walk in the door, you're still at work. For the next four or five or six hours, you're working to love and lead and be a support and be what your family needs. Don't give up. Marriages work. Here's what I'd like to do as we close. I'd like to do things a little differently this morning. Husbands, I'd love it if you took your wife's hand and came up to the front this morning. Come up to the front. I'd love, as, as a church, just for a few moments, to, to see this really cool picture of marriage. And we just come humbly and say, Hey, no matter where you're at, if you've been married three months or 30 years, you can come. I don't know where you're at, if you're at the, the top of the mountain or if you're coming down or if you and your spouse have been down here in the valley and things are just tough right now. I don't care where you're at. You can come up. And husbands, you grab your wife's hand and you come up here. Today, I, w- I would love for us to close. We're, we, we just come and pray. We just ask God for help. You come and pray with your spouse. You may, you may be asking, Tony, what do we pray for? We're okay right now. I don't know, but l- let me give you some guidance. Consider these things. Pray for your spouse. If you do nothing for just a minute or two and you're just praying for your husband or you're praying for your wife, then amen and praise God. Do that. Secondly, pray for unconfessed or unrepentant sin in your life. Ask God for forgiveness and then take it up with your spouse. Lastly, pray for your marriage. Pray for your covenant. Pray that God in his grace, through the power of the Spirit, 
would enable you to fulfill his beautiful design in marriage. So husbands, you do that now. I'd, I'd love for as many of you to come, but I understand. I, I know some people are like, I, I can't do that, Tony. Come now. I'm not going to pray over you. I just want you to stand here and just have a moment between you and your spouse and Jesus. And listen, for the rest of you, thinking, Tony, I'm not married yet. I don't know if I'm ever going to get married. I feel like I've wasted 30 minutes. No, no. Just because you're not married yet doesn't mean the invitation to respond to the word of God is not for you. Because everyone who's coming forward now, come on forward right here. Every one of us who's married is coming forward now knows that the only reason they're still in it is because of God's grace and work in their life. Amen, brothers? Right? One of the uh, jokes I've heard uh, my, my kids joke about, they, they read some dad jokes somewhere, is husbands, uh, don't make fun of your wife's decisions because you're one of them. So, brothers and sisters, let's just pray. I'm going to walk off. If you're here for 30 seconds, great. If you're here for a minute and a half, great. Whenever you're done praying, you can go back to your seat. David's going to sing a song. And then for those of you who are left, the invitation to respond is, Jesus, we're, we're standing here as testimonies to his grace. And we're saying, hey, we've entered into this covenant. And we want to do it right. But for those of you, maybe you're here for the first time. And you don't know Jesus in the invitation you come up to. We'll have people around the room to talk with you. We'd love to extend uh, this gospel to you that has the power to change lives and has the power to sustain lives in this broken world that we live in. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we've heard from you. It's my desire, and I think everyone's desire here is standing, to be radically transformed by the gospel. I pray for them. I know there are so many couples represented and families represented here at this altar. So God, give them just a few moments together, either praying in, internally or externally out loud for one, of an, one another. God, help us to keep these covenants. Thank you for the privilege that we have to display something so much bigger and better than ourselves. Help these families and these couples to be Christ-minded and Christ-centered. Help us now as we respond and give our hearts to you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, subscribe and rate us wherever you stream your podcasts. To learn more about the venue at Southcrest, visit us online at southcrest.org or on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Southcrest Baptist Church. 